against the machines. This is a race with the machines. From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Building's 21 Radical Futures, Foundations for a Better World, asks, what are the conditions we must create for humanity to change and adapt? What values and beliefs could be at the heart of a better society? In the second part of this podcast, we discuss one particular foundation which has been at the center of recent Radical Futures talks, spirituality. We explore what spirituality is, and whether it could serve as a foundation for a better world. With David Javé Johnston, Viola Routier, and Claudia Rayhart. Hello everyone and welcome to this new Building 21 podcast. This is part two of the previous Radical Futures podcast where we discussed the foundations for a better world. And part two is dedicated to one particular foundation that was brought up, a rather touchy topic. I'm talking about spirituality. So today with us we have Viola. Hello. Um, Viola, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, recent McGill graduate in anthropology and biology, and I'm now working at B21 as program assistant and working on a project. Sweet. And I'm Claudia. Uh, I'm also currently at Building 21 as a program assistant. And today we have a very special guest with us, David Jave Johnston. Or should I just say Jave? Doesn't matter. Jave, would you like to say a word about yourself? Well, first off, I, I, I don't think anyone is very special. You know, if we're going to go into spirituality, like... You know, I'm a reluctant mystic. I'm, I work here. Uh, I was a digital poet. Um, I'm an advisor. But uh, spirituality is such a controversial um, subject in the, the social domain that I'm very much a reluctant guest as well. <laughs> so there that it is. That is true. We, yeah. That is true. We did bully Java into joining our mm. podcast. but <laughs> I was just foolish enough to accept. <laughs> Thank you for accepting, yeah. Java. Thank you for inviting me. Even though no one here is special, uh, we'll still try to discuss together to maybe summarize a bit of the thoughts that have been mentioned by other fellows and guests during our previous Radical Futures talks on the topic of spirituality. And we'll also try to question whether it could serve as a foundation for a better world or whether Mm. it is too controversial a notion. So what has been mentioned in the last Radical Futures discussion was that there is a current crisis in meaning, and we've asked ourselves, can spirituality contribute to give us meaning? Um, And another point that was mentioned in this same vein was that spirituality seeks unification or encourages unification with both the natural environment and with other fellow beings. Maybe unification with others is what creates meaning. Well, I think um, it definitely does have to do with connection in some way. We, we can and probably will go into uh, the exact definition or as close to an exact definition as we can get. Um, but I think it has to do with the things that you can't perceive explicitly. 
And that, to me, implies some kind of connection with the rest of the world, because if it's not through direct observation in some way, then it means that there's some other kind of something that's letting you still sense this other realm, or this other, not realm, but this other, um, this other way of feeling the world, uh, and that something needs to be connecting uh, multiple different organisms, multiple different beings. Mm. That was beautifully said. Because I arrive here with a certain curiosity about your curiosity, I'm really curious to know where you come from or how you arrive here. Or would you like to skip the stories and just move into an abstract look at what spirituality is? Because it's so vast in a way. But the, the core principles are definitively related to finding meaning and belonging, to reintegrating oneself into a, a field that is perceived somehow because we seem to be independent little egos here. We've all got a little life, and we're strategically navigating, and we want to get ahead, and all that stuff. And ultimately, we feel separate. So the, the teachings that, um, that I've begun to follow in some ways, or to try to integrate, relate to separation as the fundamental change. These are spiritual teachings that don't really rely upon religious or intellectual formulations but they try to heal that gap, that perceived gap. So how did you arrive here? What, what do you think of this question of the foundation? Do you think the, the foundation of a, a so-called future society, um, if there is a future, if there is any time beyond now, um, do you think that would be reliant upon spirituality? Well, I think that's uh, the big question that we've kind of been asking for the past uh, few discussions. Yeah. Um, I think that we've arrived at a level of complexity in our societies that does not, hmm, how do you say, um, if we stick to our current level of consciousness, we will surely become extinct because mm. of the, yes, um, of the magnitude and complexity of societies of humans that are currently interacting in the world and if we cannot transcend this sort of more egoic state where we care about our separate little existences independently of others and do not perceive the huge networks that are connecting us both to the natural world and ourselves, then, yeah, th then there's a problem. So in this sense, I think that unification or the perspective of being a drop in the ocean is very fundamental to navigating the survival of our species, really. Agreed. It's a kind of sorrowful, sad state when I suspect the majority of mm, beings of a certain complexity who've been exposed to a kind of ideological wisdom, let's say, all recognize that there is a distinct, strong probability of mm, human extinction or just withering away of the majority of the, the human capacity to survive in the same way that we do, as long as we keep weaponizing and using weapons as modes of territorial exchange. And it does feel as if the previous um, processes of trying to resolve those kind of conflict, like revolutions for the social and civil good, like in the last week I watched a documentary on Alexandra Kolontai, who was, if you look at photographs of the, the, the Bolsheviks, she was among the only women 
And she, uh, she arranged for extraordinary transformations in the conditions of women right after the 1917 revolution. Uh, she rewrote the marriage, the civil code around the marriage act to, to allow for ex- equal power for men and women where before they were just like property. Um, yet her um, transformative catalysts to society and her utopian vision of this cooperative collective has been shattered in some respects. The waves that have been arriving of these bodies that are homo sapiens, all programmed to be evolutionary, tend to erase previous um, insights, let's say. Yeah. Um, yeah, if I um, understood correctly, you've done a lot of meditation. Um, do you feel that there's a level of spirituality in, in meditation? Um, this is maybe a kind of stupid question, but like, if everyone meditated, would there be more of a sense of connectedness? <laughs> I have no idea. I was, I was tempted to say none. You know, there's no, there's no value in, in um, practices. Because the practice itself is uh, ancillary or secondary to the kind of insight that might arrive. You're at the grocery store. At the ca- <laughs> you look into the eyes of the cashier. You hear a dinging sound. And, and something opens. The world is, is made whole. Uh, you're swimming in a chlorinated pool. You, you smell urine from a baby. <laughs> you have a moment. Suddenly you're aware of this oceanic field. You're, you're standing uh, in a forest. The, the world transforms. Um, meditation certainly has a role in uh, ripening people, I think, to a, a place where those um, insights can stabilize. And the, the apparatuses that have evolved around meditation and the religions, and uh, I guess the major one being Buddhism and then aspects of Hinduism and Advaita. And there's a lot of different formulations of meditation that are all around the world. But if meditation was going to work, it's been here since, you know, it's been here for a long time. And the Minamar Buddhists supported the, the genocide against the Islamic people. There's a lot of examples of uh, very, very religious groups who've been quite, quite violent. So... I don't know, I'm very, that's why I'm so hesitant to speak about this topic. People dive so deeply in and hold so tightly to a framework because there's a kind of belonging that can come, but that's a belonging within limits. That's a belonging that's directional. That's a belonging that's transactional. And that also has a belonging that defends itself, that's angry, that's reactive. So in, in that sense, in, in that case, I feel like spirituality or what seeks to be a spiritual framework would have sort of missed its goal if the goal of spirituality is to transcend a bit of the reactionary, angry, egoic nature which we all have in us than a group of people who, for example, seek to embody spiritual principles in their lives but then feel rejecting of any other external group or groups who are not spiritual or who do not share the same beliefs, then uh, their enterprise has basically failed. And um, in a sense, I think spiritual frameworks can be dangerous because they're very elaborate as well. They come with uh, practices, beliefs, with sometimes rites of passage, 
with specific celebrations, and they form this closed hermetic vision of the world, whereas I find there would be a lot of value in trying to pin down what are the core values and principles that maybe are shared across spiritualities and how can we think more about those in our daily lives? Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to say um, we need to make sure we, we differentiate between spirituality and religion because the two mm. are obviously connected, but I think there's a big difference between the two. Uh, when I think of religion, I think exactly what you're saying, like certain certain moral guidelines, certain uh, holidays, certain practices. But then spirituality in and of itself, I see more as just a general I don't know, a- acceptance that we don't know everything, acceptance that there's maybe something other than what we can directly perceive, um, like I was saying earlier. So I think those, those two things are, are very different. Religion can encompass spirituality, but spirituality doesn't have to encompass religion. And it's interesting that you mention uncertainty because we, um, we have talked a bit about unity, maybe, and how spirituality might uh, encourage a sense of unity among people. But we also mentioned in our previous discussions uncertainty and what is the connection between feeling spiritual, perhaps, and being uncertain about the world. And that might also be something which um, can differentiate spirituality from religion. How do you see it, Jave? Do you think that for someone to be spiritual, that person also has to be uncertain and always leave room for reinterpretation, for doubting? There's a paradox at work, perhaps, in that if one, if one arri- arrives at a position where there's been a direct recognition not through the senses, not through the perceptual field, not through the, the body in a way. But say there, say there is a direct recognition, then I don't believe that recognition arrives with uncertainty. In fact, that erases the kind of uncertainty that the, the, um, the provisional character of the ego with its stories and narratives and images of limit and lack and you know, scarcity um, arrives at. But what sort of recognition do you mean? Recognizing what? Well, can you can we all try to answer that in a way? Because that's interesting to me. Like one of the teachers uh, I, I listened to, she she recommends that people look for joy markers in their life, and then by by reinvoking uh, the joy marker, like remembering some peak moment where one truly truly experienced the vivid perfection of reality and uh, left behind all the doubts and fears and worries and uncertainties, that joy marker changes the physiognomy. Like if we all did that now for a moment, that, that's a direct recognition in some sense. It's almost like an abstract metaphysical um, quantum cosmology or something, right? Like if we really look at it, we, we are just an energy field. And our bodies are just temporary instantations within that energy field. We don't have to look to spirituality to know we are part of this singular, ongoing, flowing process. But strangely, we're locked inside these calibrating devices that want us all to get better, to do right, or do, not do wrong. And, you know, I feel that all the time. It's, like, yeah. it's, it's interesting that you put uncertainty with doubts and fears and worries oh. um, because I don't see it at all for me uncertainty is a very positive thing 
Okay. Um, a, a doubt is maybe more of a negative thing because it's, you know, you, you've either done something or you've experienced something and suddenly you're not sure whether you should regret it. You're not sure whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do or, or whatever. But if anything, I think the times that I feel the most connected with things or the most, um, I, I guess, the most spiritual, if that's kind of the definition we're going with, is when I have, when I don't really know what's happening. You know, like if you, if you look at the moon at, at night or something, I have no idea what, what's up there. I've, I barely know what's around me because it's dark. Um, there's, you know, millions and billions of light years of things in space, and I, I, I will never know. And that's beautiful. That's, been, that's amazing. Like, hmm. that's, that's one of the things I, I like the most. Um, same thing, I love when I go into a, if I have a random question, which we've been having a lot of in, uh, in the various discussions, I always feel a little bit disappointed if I get to a good answer. That What I really like is, is basically ending it with like, oh yeah, that's so weird. Huh. Oh well. And then just leave it at that. That's the thing that I find the, the coolest. So for me, I think uncertainty is an important, if not a foundation in and of itself, but is an important aspect to keep with us in a future society. Um, because it, if we're not sure what's going to happen, it means that anything is technically possible, both negative and positive things included in that. Yeah, and um, maybe uncertainty in a positive sense could help also prevent people from getting excessively attached to their ideas and perspectives because it's very easy and comforting to reach conclusions where we think we're right, for example, and clearly this other group is wrong. But that's where uncertainty could prevent... Um, the sort of separation. There was a Zen master in the, I guess in the 80s and 90s, called Zen master Sung San Sinim, and he was uh, famous. His only phrase, usually, he said to everyone, only don't know. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you basically learn three English words, and, and, but he was impeccable at the cutting through, right? So there's different procedures within this spiritual domain, but one of them is pointing out. The direct recognition is pointed out to people, or there's a cutting through of the conceptual barriers, which are part of these rigid formulations that lead to the faithful lockdown that says right, wrong, this, that, me versus you, I versus them, that sort of stuff. So, so in that sense, he, he encouraged uncertainty in yes. people. Yeah. yeah, I actually met him. That's what he said to me. Only don't know. <laughs> but I also understand what Javé said about um, when you experience something relating on a more intuitive and uh, overwhelming level, maybe then you do not have uncertainties because you're not asking any question in the first place. But I don't think you need to ask questions to be uncertain about something. You know, I think we spend most of the day being uncertain about something or other in the sense that we don't know exactly what it is or what's going on. Like, to take kind of a stupid example, I have no idea how traffic lights work. I, I, apparently there's a whole <laughs> system of people who are in charge of, like, making them work and, you know, who decides when which light turns red at what time. That's a form of uncertainty. It's a very, it's a very stupid example. But I don't know. I, I think that still plays into it somehow. I'm not exactly sure how. There's uh, also the teacher, Krishnamurti, um, who had conversations with David Bohm, the physicist, who was involved in developing the idea of implicate order, right? So this is born from Heisenberg's uncertainty, like the most famous 
physics use of the term uncertainty. So they often discuss the, the sort of fertile ground of, of letting go of all the conceptual frameworks. And so a lot of the, the devotional traditions, they, they all kind of follow that idea that the, the devotee must actually dissolve away from their preconceived notions. That's it's, true. it's like a shedding of the prefixed notions and maybe arriving at that kind of ambiguous wonder that's open to everything just as it is. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked that summary of the term uncertainty. And yeah, I would tend to also want to use it in a positive way, not as associated with fear, because I think one can be comfortable with their own lack of understanding. Maybe because eventually understanding leads to uh, being able to exert control as well, which is why we seek understanding. If I understand how something can work, then maybe I can influence it and make it work to my advantage. So I think that's also a pressure for wanting to understand the world in order to navigate it in an advantageous way. There's a question we could come back to, because you asked like the benefits of meditation. I went off on a tangent. But actually, there's, now I'm going to start spouting out people, but Tara Brock, who's a, a contemporary um, psychotherapist with roots in Dharma teaching. Um, her name is Tara and then Brock, B-R-A-C-H. She, she does all this talking which weaves together, you know, the, the mystical poetry of Rumi with psychotherapeutic insights. And then she brings it into this framework where people are brought into a contemplative quietness, a stillness, right? Which is part of that shedding, right? Like, can, can the conceptual, uh, conversational, always-on, discourse-based, word, language, can it quiet down? And once it's quiet... She talks people through this procedure, which is kind of like a hybrid merger of meditation and psychotherapy, which leads them to recognize, acknowledge, investigate, and then nurture whatever mm, might be emerging in their mind, which feels like it could be labeled as a problem. And through that, it's dissolved. That problem opens, and its actual energy is released again into productive use. So I do think there's genuine benefits to bringing people into their body, having them breathe, um, merging with a kind of stillness and quiet, and taking time each day to, to contemplate with, with a kind of a, a gratitude, the immense generosity and the weirdness, the weird mystery of having a body. It's just bizarre. It's extraordinary that we're all here, alive, apparently. Um, so, we mentioned unity and uncertainty. At some point, uh, I think the term metaphysics also came into discussion. It was suggested whether metaphysics could replace the term spirituality as referring to the same kind of experience, the same um, outlook, maybe. I um, Just like one, one quick note about that. I agree that maybe we need another term other than spirituality, um, specifically because of the, of the overlap between religion and spirituality and the fact that a lot of people use spirituality to mean religion, um, which is fine. But if we're looking for words specifically to represent, you know, 
um, uncertainty, uh, unity, connectedness, all of those things. I think it might be good to look for another word. So I agree that maybe um, I'm I'm not sure that metaphysics is necessarily the right word in part um, because it sounds a bit too technical almost. Uh, um, this may be my own just when I learned the word, I assumed it was a kind of science. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the case for for a lot of people, actually, because the term was, well, it's mostly attributed to Aristotle. And it's a very mindy thing, right? Yes. It's, it's very much about the mind, whereas I think what we're trying to get at is something that is more in the realm of feeling without necessarily having to think extensively about it. There's the gut-brain axis, right? Um, there's a cluster of cardiac neurons as well. And all of this is communicating through that vagus nerve polyvagal system. So there, there's, there's uh, neurophysiological evidence that um, the cognizing system that a human homo sapien body is, and that believing that the, the homo sapien is a single family, I think is one of the fundamental changes that would be necessary if, if the foundation of a, a future society that is perhaps a bit more equitable and, and pacifist perhaps were to emerge. And now that we're, you've raised the subject, I, I like the idea of changing the name because spirituality has this idea of like the ghost, right? The spirit. And yeah, that's something that... Um, it's kind of a block in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People did trip over that and the question was asked, what is a spirit in the first place? Yeah. And, and personally, like, for that's why I'm a reluctant mystic, because, you know, I really, truly rejected churches. I, I have not been to a church service for, I don't know, 30 years. But not, not to say that that is wrong if a person feels drawn to it. I believe that the recognitions and the heartfelt wisdom can emerge through whatever you do. You know, it could be a club devoted to kites, or it could be just Roman Catholicism or I Islam or anything, right? Like, it's really open, it's mysterious how it occurs. But if there's going to be a future society, my basic feeling, and this goes back a long way, is that it would be lovely if uh, there were a powerful matriarchy that emerged <laughs> to redefine this terminology, to put it in contexts that, like religion, I, as soon as I think about religion, I think about the Inquisition, mm. witch burning, crusades, you know, <laughs> misogyny, oligarchs. The brain just gets into like a, a chain of judgment. Yeah, it's very interesting how um, you can agree on a definition and you can uh, look up the definition in the dictionary and that can be exactly what you mean, but the meaning of the word, regardless of its entry, is bound to change with every new use, with every new event. In the sense, it's, <laughs> I don't think we could redefine the term religion because it's already so rich. It's embedded in a very rich network of world events. So, Do you have any ideas for the new term? For the new term, not really. Um, we actually, in, in the, I think it was the first Radical Futures discussion, um, we did an exercise where everyone invented a word, a word to replace spirituality. And the thing is, I guess any of those could work. It's just a little bit hard to, when you invent a word, to accept it right away because, you know, it's not really a word until everyone starts to use it. Exactly. I think it's a bit too abstract maybe to have a new word 
because uh, it takes a lot of intellectual effort when you see the word to mm. think of what it means. So in the sense, an alternative we had was instead of using one word for spirituality, to use different words that represent more directly what it is we're understanding spirituality to be. So for example, unity or connectedness could be mm. a word. And we're on this quest, on this never-ending quest of finding yeah, the other concepts that can help us have a grasp, a clearer grasp. But I, I think that either unity or connectedness would be good words for it, as long as we understand that to be not just connectedness to other humans or connectedness to other societies, but connectedness in general, kind of to everything that is or could be out there. And again, as with any new term, it's going to be a while before anyone really accepts that that's the definition of it or really starts to use it or anything. But I think in the meantime, something along those lines is a good idea, something that has to do with, with connection. There's a, an interesting book on, on that line of reasoning called Panpsychism in the West. And, you know, like metaphysics is kind of still known, though I do associate it with like big, big books and thinking and neocortex and complicated ideas and esoteric formulations and doesn't really have a feeling vibe. Um, but panpsychism is, if you break it down etymologically, it means uh, all sold. And panpsychism in the West is published by MIT Press. The author is David Scribina. And it traces the, the sort of lineage history of many, many thinkers in the West, like prominent among them, William James, who really fundamentally believed that the, the world was a single living conscious entity that could be entered into at a heartfelt level. So panpsychism was, is quite active term, um, but really kind of only in a rarefied context. Yes, yeah. Mm. Which one would you, do you like better between unity and connectedness? The dilemma with Unity is that, you know, the gaming company Unity 3D. <laughs> Good point. You know, people have trademarked key words like the word meta. That, that, that fundamentally is, is like the, the greening of the commons. It's the beginning of the ownership of language. Like Facebook, it's okay. It's a composite word. It didn't really exist before. But meta, they've taken a prefix and now it is placed under trademark. That, that can only be done by... A, hegemonic, huge corporation, because it is, it's an infringement upon our collective heritage to say that now that we say metaphysics, we're actually saying Facebook physics. So that's hyper weird. Yeah, they, they bullied their way into our mental networks. <laughs> so we should also discuss uh, how we would enact spirituality or how spirituality would contribute to a better world. So I, I just wanted to start uh, by sharing the way I see it, which is that um, there is currently this big contradiction between, let's call it objective reality, if there is such a thing, or a reality that encompasses maybe all living beings, and then singular reality, or the way in which each individual mentalizes their existence and the world. So these two do not concord. To me, if spirituality was to help us build a more successful society or future, it would be through making those two planes match a bit more so that we are able to take into account something which exceeds um, 
our bodies and our yeah our embodied experience. Yeah, no, I I agree with you very much. Um, you know, again, if we're going with the more connectedness or or unified semi definition of spirituality, then I think that just just understanding the fact that we are connected with everything else in on the planet, everything else in the universe, uh, will automatically maybe not align those two planes that you were talking about, but bring them a bit closer. Because if suddenly, you know, you've got the quote-unquote objective world and then the, your inner world, your personal world, whatever you want to call it, but you're connected to the outer world, then as soon as you've accepted that, there's a link between the personal and the objective, the, the outer world. And, you know, I think that maybe entails a certain amount of empathy or at least a certain amount of understanding. Yeah, and, and I think these are things that can be taught as well um, through very practical experiments with children. Um, cultivated and nourished, according to certain mystics, already a, an abundance of, of unity is here, right now, in this moment. Like, in, in every moment, that's the only moment in which anything can ever occur. Um, and a word which we haven't really used yet, I don't think, is love, which is this fundamental idea. If, if there is some um, metaphysical sensory realm that's not perceptual, but that is uh, like a felt knowingness that's prior to consciousness, and the evidence from multiple authentic mystic traditions um, tends to be that that is genuinely love. That's good news. You know, because my suspicion is, well, this place is pretty messy. There's a lot of conflict. So probably it came from a mistake somewhere. <laughs> like, I, I really am more of a pessimist uh, Gnostic in the sense. Like, they had a, a model, the Gnostics in Alexandria in the 5th century before BC. They had an idea that the universe was born when a demiurge was a micro-god, um, uh, who didn't have authority to create universes, made this universe. So that's why it's a little bit messy. <laughs> I, I kind of actually suspect there's something there. But then the teachers who are actually profoundly um, embodying a kind of live knowledge of what it is to shift from, as you said, shift from this sense of being a particle, shift from being in egoic dominance, into an awareness of uh, field recognition of having this wide, open, awakened awareness and the fundamental presence awareness of, of loving compassion, what the Buddhists call uh, bodhicitta. So the ocean-like wisdom of bodhicitta. They supplicate before it. They invoke it. They bring it into the body. They embody it. And from that, they're released from time and space and the constraints of the bodily... Um, navigational necessities, what it feels to be its limitations, and then a different social fabric can emerge potentially from experiments where everyone would be placed into the recognition, the remembrance of something that actually, according to those traditions, is all that ever is. And according to what I've seen of people who exist perhaps at the liminal state between being embodied still yet having some aspects of enlightenment, their minds and their egos are still operative. But now the, the dominance of the ego is no longer operative. So the dominance of a wide open recognition of that 
direct perception, that direct experience becomes the navigational principle that guides them. And to envision a society where where all the entities here, all the seeming bodies, all the, the appearances, begin to dream a more uh, cooperative, compassionate, loving environment would be uh, wonderful. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And I think the, the word dream is very nice. And really all we need to do for, for things to change, and things do change uh, in time, is to dream them differently, to envision them differently. Yes. Because we believe in so many things like companies and money, which I don't think we should necessarily stop believing in. <laughs> um, but when we stop to, to think about it, we can realize how much reality is really just what emerges from collective dreaming. Yes. Like collective imagination. So in this sense, it would be nice to have some principles which we agree to collectively dream about and which can also manifest differently in reality and not manifest through incentive for competition and greed, for example, to name a, a few simple things. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and this concludes part two of our current Radical Futures podcast. I don't know what will come next, but stay tuned. <laughs>